as we continue our questions and answers. It says in Matthew 19.28. So let's turn to Matthew 19.28 to see what the question is about. Matthew 19.28. It says, So Yeshua said to them, to them who? To his disciples. That's right. Uh, surely I say to you that in the regeneration, what does it mean, the regeneration? Resurrection. resurrection of the Messianic kingdom, right. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the question is, in Matthew 19, 28, so Yeshua said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration where the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. How does this not include Judas? Well, assuming the question is referring to Judas Iscariot, and I'm sure it is, notice in the statement is, you who have followed me. Was Judas a follower of Messiah? Was he a faithful servant? He was not. So the scriptures tell us that Judas Iscariot has a special future, let's say, set aside for him. Let's go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 23 to 25. So the phrase, you who have followed me, excludes Judas Iscariot. So Matthew 26, verses 23 to 25. We're at the Last Supper. And in verse 21, we'll start there. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you who? Yeah, it says in verse 20, he sat down with the twelve. It's just Messiah and the twelve. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? If I'd been there, I might have said, Lord's in me, but apparently they had better English than I. He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. All this tells you how the disciples are seated, right? Because the only ones that can put their bread in the same dish as Messiah at the same time is one on his right hand and the one on his left. John is on one side. Who's on the other side? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Verse 24, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it's written of him. How is it written Messiah would die? By crucifixion. In Psalm 22. And that he would be betrayed and all those other things. That his clothes would not be ripped apart, but rather would be gambled over. All kinds of prophecies. Says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. If you're not a horse, what's woe? Bad. Bad. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You said it, which means yes. So Judas Iscariot's future, he will be resurrected at the end of the millennial kingdom for the white throne judgment and will be cast away into the lake of fire.
Did they replace Judas Iscariot? Yes, they did. So there were 12 apostles sent out even after the death of Judas Iscariot because he was replaced. Next question. Zechariah was praying the Amidah in Luke 1.10. That's true. Let's go to Luke 1.10. Luke 1.10, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. That's at 3 p.m. That's the time for the prayer of the Amidah. So it says, Zechariah was praying the Amidah in Luke 1.10, and God answers his prayer by giving him and his wife a son, who will be John the Baptist, who will be in the spirit, I would say, and role of Elijah, who will come before the Messiah. But in Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6, let's go read that. Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6, because that's in the Amidah. Malachi, not Malachi, I'm sure. Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6. It says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So where did the law come from? From the Lord. With the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Right? So the question goes on. But in Malachi 4, 4 to 6, where the Amidah is, it says, Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We know that the day of the Lord is the last 1,000 years, including the tribulation period and Messiah's second coming. Is that a true statement? That is a true statement. What if Israel, though, had accepted Messiah at his first coming? The day of the Lord would have started then, Right? What were they preaching from John the Baptist? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what did Messiah preach after his defeat of Satan? Same thing. Which was what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it was rejected. So that's why we know we've got to wait yet for the day of the Lord to come. So the questioner is correct. It says Malachi 4 5 specifically says that the Elijah who will precede the Messiah will be preceding the Messiah who will come at the end of days, which is true. So, why do we relate Matthew 4 5 to John the Baptist and Messiah's first coming? It is a really good question. The best answer I can come up with is we do because Messiah does. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. He tells us specifically that at his first coming, the role of Elijah is fulfilled by John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 17. We won't go through the whole Mount of Transfiguration teaching. But notice his start in Matthew 17 verse 1. Now after six days. When looking at end times prophecy, a day is to the Lord as what? Thousand years. 
So the six days pre um, preceding the day of the Lord teaches about 6,000 years from creation till the day of the Lord. So that just focuses our mind on when the vision is to be fulfilled. And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10, after verse 9 where Messiah says, tell no one the vision until after I'm resurrected, I paraphrase. Verse 10 says, and his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do they say it? Because of Malachi chapter 4. Of course, they wouldn't say that. How would they say? Because of Malachi chapter 3. The Tanakh only has three chapters of Malachi. We have four. What did it have originally? None. None so it doesn't matter. Okay. So they ask, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Verse 11. Yeshua answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. There are two witnesses described in Revelation chapter 11. One is Elijah, the other is Moses. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did, a, did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Because Messiah specifically says that John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah at his first coming, then we can be confident to say he filled the role of Elijah at the first coming. After all, he was there. And this is the chapter, though, where Elijah actually appears. So you've got yeah. John the Baptist has already been beheaded. Right, John the Baptist was already beheaded back in Matthew 11, right? Now John the Baptist. Elijah, Elijah and Moses, Moses appear in the vision. Appear, apparently, either strengthening Yeshua or discussing what's upcoming. And then right after that, Yeshua says, well, you know, John the Baptist did come in the role of Elijah. Right. So there's probably a lot more tied up into this role of Elijah on the surface. Yeah. The main portion of the role of Elijah is calling people to repentance. Right to restore us back to a good relationship with our Heavenly Father. But, but it's also announcing the kingdom, isn't it? I mean, this thing on the mountain, the transfiguration, that, that's almost like a team huddle of, okay, this is where it starts. This is where we're fixing to unleash the kingdom of God. On yeah. The earth. Let's turn to Revelation 11 and see about the teaching of these two witnesses. Because they are, in fact, here to preach that the kingdom is about to come, so be ready. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Revelation 11, a lot of people teach incorrectly that the two witnesses are in the second half of the tribulation, but they're not. They're in the first half. Revelation 11, verse 3. Now I'll give power to my two witnesses. We see those two witnesses in Matthew 17, Moses and Elijah. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. How long is 1,260 days? Three and, a half years. Three and a half years to the day. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. That's from Zechariah. It's also in Joel. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, you must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. What did all the prophets of Israel prophesy? 
Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or it's coming, depending upon what time period they were in. They have power over waters, turn them to blood, and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, what are they testifying about? Yeshua is the Messiah who died for you, was buried, was resurrected, and y'all missed the boat. So you need to get saved now while there's still time. Okay, next question. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Don't you love Ephesians 2? It's a powerful, powerful chapter. Yes, sir. Sorry. Um, it's interesting that the two witnesses are killed at the midpoint of the tribulation period because that's when the false Messiah says, no, you don't worship anybody else but me. Right. That's when the false Messiah is going to set up his throne in the temple of God. Satan's kicked out of heaven. All heaven is torn loose. And you're right. That's the end of their testimony. So they've been testifying for three and a half years to Israel and anyone else who will listen, that time is growing short. Get it together now. So when the abomination desolation is set up 30 days before the midpoint, people say, well, how will they have heard about Messiah's prophecy in Matthew 24? Watching it on TV. Watching it on TV, listening to the two witnesses. Unless they do like they did in the selection. They just refused to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And how do we know they testify in the first half and not the second half when they die? They're dead in three and a half days. If it was the second half, Messiah would have already come and would have destroyed the false Messiah and the false prophet who are rejoicing over the death of the two witnesses and sending gifts to everybody. When they're resurrected three days later, oh, we forgot to resurrect those guys. <laughs> yeah, when they're resurrected three days later, then the false Messiah is going, uh-oh. Uh-oh, right. So Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 13. You know, verses 11 and 12 are, you used to be aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You used to be without Messiah. You used to be strangers from the covenants. Verse 13 says, but now means now that you've been saved. In Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. That's the essence of the question here. The questioner says, why does Paul use brought near quote? Unquote. And not a more definitive or emphatic word like brought in. Is it near, quote unquote, like the second prize? Are there tiers or levels of salvation or physical proximity to or dwelling with Yeshua in the kingdom? It's an excellent question. What it requires is to understand biblical Hebrew. The answer to the question is no, there's not different tiers or levels of salvation. The Hebrew phrase, the biblical Hebrew phrase, all yod. All means upon, yod means hand. It gets translated in our Bible as near, but it's actually closer than near. It means it's right here. It literally means upon a hand. It's used to mean right here, no longer afar off. It's here now. So 
When they translate it as near, and you think of near in English terms, it doesn't convey the same strength of meaning as the Hebrew al-yad. The word at hand, would. Yeah, yeah at hand. Show me where your hand is. Yeah, at hand means it's right here. I yep. He's motioning with the left hand because he'd smack his wife if he motioned with the other one <laughs> because she that. is at hand. He's at hand. She's more at hand than that chair. Yeah. At hand means right here. Yeah. It's right here. That was a good question. It was a good question. A lot of the questions are going to come down to, are we thinking in English or are we thinking in Hebrew? Not all of them, though. Next one's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We've talked about this verse before, but apparently I've left some lingering questions. And a Q&A session is a good time to clear up those lingering questions. Isaiah 7 takes place during the reign of King Ahaz. The son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Is he a good king or a bad king? He's a bad king. And there are enemies that are threatening the kingdom. And God wants Ahaz to put his faith in God and not try and bring in mercenaries and other military forces. And he makes the king a promise. I'm going to take care of it. Just trust me. And he tells Ahaz, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz is arrogant. He says, I ain't doing it. I'm not going to ask for a sign because I don't believe you'll do it. No, how? Essentially is what it comes down to. So in verse 7, 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You wouldn't ask for a sign. He's going to give it to you anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God who is with us. We've talked about that word virgin before. It is the Hebrew word Alma, not Betula. So let's read her question, or his question, whoever's question it was. I didn't mark down who asked each question. It says, if this is a prophecy about Ahaz's son being born, and it is, that's the near-term fulfillment, and called Emmanuel because the word virgin is not correct, it's not that Ahaz's son will be called Emmanuel. It will be that God is called Emmanuel, God who is with us. So it will be a recognition that God is amongst the people, whether Ahaz believes it or not. Says it's referring to a virtuous woman who was married. That's right. Ahaz's wife is a virtuous wife. She's faithful to her husband. Says then, how is this first a dual fulfillment prophecy of the Lord being born to a virgin? It's the only word God could have chosen that would apply both to the wife of Ahaz and to the Virgin Mary several hundred years later. Because if a wife is and Alma, it means that she is a faithful wife to her husband. She's not an adulteress. But if she's not married, it means that she is a virgin and is awaiting her marriage in chastity, faith, and honor. So if a girl is unmarried and considered virtuous, she is a virgin. And when the sages had the Bible translated from Hebrew to Greek in the version called the Septuagint, 
Was that before or after Messiah was born? Before, 200 years. Was before. before? Yep, 200 years before. When they translated this word, they used a word that in Greek specifically means virgin. To show that, that was the understanding of the time, is that it referred in the past to the birth of Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, that he was the proof that God is amongst us. But it was also a forward-looking prophecy because at the time Septuagint was translated, Hezekiah was long since dead. And they said the only fulfillment left is the future fulfillment. So they chose a word that means specifically an only virgin. And then Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. We'll start in verse 21 because that sets the tone and helps us understand the background. Matthew 1, verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, the she being Mary, and you shall call his name Yeshua, which means salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Or, more literally, God who is with us. So why would the sages of old, 200 years before the birth of Messiah, have said this is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Messiah, and not just about Hezekiah? What is there in the scripture that caused them to believe the Messiah will be virgin born? It's in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9. Mm -hmm. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7. And the word used in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, specifically, it only means virgin also, while you're turning there. But Isaiah 9, 6, can you all do it in Hebrew with me? Ki yela lanu ben nitan lanu. Yeah, we sing it. For unto us a child is born, that's the first coming. For unto us a son is given, that's the second coming. Child in the first phrase is yelad, which means a baby. Son, Bane, can be up to mid-twenties. So it's not the same as a baby. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Is that at his first coming or second? Second. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. If you've got a comma between Wonderful and Counselor, scratch it out. Mighty God, that's El Gibor in Hebrew. Gibor is not just mighty, but it's a mighty soldier, a warrior. One who is mighty in battle. The next says everlasting father, which is not right. It's a word pair. Ad olam, father of eternity. Aviad, right. Thank you. Aviad. Father of eternity. And then prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That word of the increase, that's one word in Hebrew. It's lamarba. 
And how many letters are there in the Hebrew alphabet? There are 22, and five have a sophit form or a final form. That is, they look different when they're the last letter of a word. This is the only place in the Hebrew scriptures where we have a final name in the middle of a word. Lamarba, that M sound, Lamarba, should be an open name, not a closed name. Or a final name. The final name looks like a closed box. No opening. And the sages of old said, the reason there's a final name in the word Lamarba is because it's talking about the closed womb of a virgin. And it was from this verse that they understood Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, to refer to the virgin birth of Messiah. Ready for the next question? Listening to the teaching on Revelation 3, 7. So let's turn to Revelation 3, 7. I love it when they include the references so I don't have to scratch my head and going, I wonder what they're talking about. This is very helpful. Verse 7 says, are we there? All right. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So the question says, listening to the teaching on Revelation 3.7, we referred to Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 to 23. So let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 22. I know we referred to it because I got it right here in my, my Bible to go back and refer to it. So that part of the question is correct too. Isaiah 22 verses 20 to 23. Then it shall be in that day. What day? Day of the Lord. So there's some end times prophecy here. That I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I'll commit your responsibility into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to the house of David. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. He shall open, and no one shall shut. Now who is this talking about? This time about Messiah. Mm -hmm. He shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in the secure place. What's that word for, play, for peg? Yotaid, right? And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Again, verse 25 begins with what? In that day. So let's see. The question goes on. We referred to Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 23. And in particular, Isaiah 22:23, 23, which says, I will fasten him as a peg. 
and they put the Hebrew word 3489, Yatade, in a secure place. It would become a glorious throne to his father's house, and said that the peg was in the temple, and everything hangs and relies on the Yotade, that the Yotade is Messiah, that these verses, Isaiah 22, 20 to 23, are an end times prophecy. True. So, referring to Isaiah twenty-two twenty-five, which is why I read on, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the yatad that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Is this, Isaiah twenty-two twenty-five, a dual fulfillment of Messiah being cut off in his first coming, and the false Messiah being cut off in the tribulation period. If not, what does it mean? Excellent insight for a couple of things. But first, Isaiah 22.25 refers back to Isaiah 22.15-19. So let's back up to 15-19 to and read about the wicked servant. If Messiah is the good servant in the day of the Lord, who's the wicked servant? The false Messiah. Who's going to set himself up in the temple of God claiming to be God? False Messiah. Who's going to get cast down? False Messiah. So he's prophesied by Shebna. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times. Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country, and there you shall die. And there your glorious chariot shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. So Shebna is the wicked servant. He is the peg that in verse 25 is being removed, torn down, and cast out. It's not a reference to Messiah, but a reference to the false Messiah who wants so desperately to fulfill the role of Messiah. But how does that work out for him? Not so well. Next question. Because the underlying language in our New Testament is Greek, because either the existence of original Hebrew text has been denied, or they have been lost. We only have one word for God in the New Testament, which is theos, Greek word 2316. Whereas in the Old Testament, we have many names for God, each one of which identifies an aspect of God's character. Have we lost God's many names in the New Testament because of the translation into Greek? I mean, if we had the Hebrew manuscripts, we, would we see God's various names depicted or would the names of God not have been relevant for some reason in the New Testament? This question was not as clear to me as some. The name El Eloah or Elohim in the Old Testament would be translated as Theos 
in, in Greek. For instance, let's go to Matthew 3, 9. Matthew 3, 9. There are a lot of times in the Old Testament there's an adjective like Adonai Yireh, but that's a description of event that's coming. It means that the Lord will be seen here on Mount Moriah. So Matthew 3, 9, since you're turning there. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. There the word God is from Elohim. And the word Adonai in the Old Testament or the Tetragrammaton, either one, is translated in the New Testament in the Greek as kurios, as in Matthew 1.20. Let's go to Matthew 1.20. But when he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So that word Lord we know is referring back to the Tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh and it's translating the New Testament as kurios. It would be nice if we had a different word when it's Adonai and when it's the Tetragrammaton, but there are two different forms of kurios that are used. So you can tell from the ending of the word, kurios is just the basic before you put it through its um, inclusions, conjugations, you can tell by the ending on the word whether it's referring to just Adonai, my Lord, or the Tetragrammaton, a name of the Lord. And I wasn't sure if there were any other names the person was asking about. They didn't mention them. Well, you know, I was thinking about this. Good loud. You were thinking about this? A lot of times when you read in the Old Testament, when you see the word God, a lot of times it's mistranslated because it'll, it'll be the Tetragrammaton. Right. So there look at the Hebrew, whenever you see God, most of the time it's just El. There's not a whole wide variety of names for right. God. It's usually El or Elohim. Right. So, and a lot of times when you see God mistranslate, it should be the Tetragrammaton. Right. Sometimes. So, right. I don't think there are many as many names for God as... Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't either. I think there's... Um, other things put with it, like Adonai Yerez, the Tetragrammaton, the word Yerez means will be seen. Um, and I don't know. What? Yes, sir. So it's not Lord, it's Kurios, it's God? No, Kurios is Lord. Either my Lord, as in with a little L, or my Lord, as in the big Lord. But you can't tell just from the word kurios, which it is, you have to look at the declension, if declension is the right word. I think the person's question really related to that because, you know, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. We don't know if he's saying my YHWH. We don't know. Actually, we do because you can tell by the ending. You can? Yep. But I'm saying we don't know because you look at the Yeah, from the English, you can't tell. Yeah. It's, you've got to study a lot to know that, and it's the same throughout the New Testament. 
and I think what they're asking is, why is it so confusing? Why can't just a normal reader know who they're referring to, and if they're referring to Yeshua uh -huh. as God, which they are, of course. Yeah. But I think that's the question, basically, is why has it been kind of covered up? I think you phrase it exactly right. Why has it been covered up? If they had given us the Hebrew New Testament and maintained it, there, were, there would be a lot of Catholic doctrines that would fall by the wayside immediately. Yeah. So they want us to believe that the New Testament was originally written in Greek because they say God cast off Israel. They're no longer his people. God wrote the New Testament for Gentiles. God doesn't care about Jews anymore. And that's why he wrote it in Greek, because they would never accept it if it was in Greek. How many witnesses do we have, though, that it's actually written in Hebrew? Down through the ages, dozens. And the text of the Bible itself, what do we see in just what we saw here in Matthew 122? What's that comma saying? What does that tell you about the original language? It's Hebrew. That's how in the Hebrew language you indicate a quote because there are no quotation marks. Okay, but we digress. But you know, Wayne, too, it could be like to kind of blur the lines between like Old Testament God and New Testament. You know, like if you don't see, like when you look in the Old Testament, you see the Tetragrammaton. Yeah. You know for, without a doubt who that's referring to. Yeah. But then in the New Testament, when it says Lord, it's like, you know, it kind of seems like it's trying to blur lines. Yeah. Where did the doctrine of the Trinity first arise? Fourth century Roman Catholicism. So how do you keep people from following God's commandments as you say, well, that was their God. But he's been overthrown. We've had a coup. We've got a new, different, more loving God. Okay. But I wasn't there, it is what it is. and I don't mean to cast dispersions. I, just like you, have a feeling that some of these obscurings were not unintentional. Yes, ma'am. How many of the New Testament books were written in Hebrew? We don't have copies of all of them. You can tell from Revelation three ways that it's written in Hebrew. One is the comma saying. One is the mistranslation of feet and legs. And the third is the Hebrew words that are transliterated because they didn't have a Greek word for it. I've seen copies of all four New Testament books in Hebrew, though it's awfully hard to find even references to it anymore because those were some of the books out of the um, Dead Sea Scrolls that the Catholic Church how, how do I put this gently um, stowed away for no one to be able to study or publish so was Hebrews written in Hebrew also. yeah Hebrew would have been written in, in Hebrew Matthew, Hebrews. Hebrew, Hebrews so you're saying Revelation in the Vatican sure. there are copies of the Hebrew New Testament yeah probably of the Gospels, at least, probably. Yeah, I know there are. Oh. Uh huh. Most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are in the archives of the Vatican, and they won't allow anyone to study them. But I, I have seen pictures that were taken before they were procured by the Vatican. 
Are you aware of any um, modern Hebrew New Testaments um, that might be more faithful to the Hebrew than they are to the Greek? Oh, yes. Yes, there are New Testaments that are translated from the Hebrew and some from Aramaic texts where the Aramaic text survives. Would I share? Well, you pieces uh, of a title or title or author. Or author. Or, yeah, there's a lot of believers in yeah. Israel now. What's the history of the is just Matthew, as is the Yom Tov. Um, I will have to find my copy that's translated not from a Greek text, but from Hebrew and Aramaic sources and Syriac sources. Okay. Hebrew, Syriac, and Aramaic are very closely related languages. Like Arabic is a closely related language. How do you say Abraham in Arabic? No, it's Ibrahim. So the vowel is different. The consonants are the same. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Syriac. Syriac. Yeah. As in the old Aram. Okay, there's a one out here. Let me see what it is. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a good comment. But it was a private comment, so it was good. Okay, next question. Oh, this is a good one. Why would the New King James Version be the only mainstream version of the Bible that would capitalize the he in Daniel 9.27. So let's go look at Daniel 9.27. See, these people are actually reading and studying. I'm impressed with the quality of the questions. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And I've actually had several pastors over the last few months tell me that Daniel 9.27 is about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to make a seven-year covenant with Israel and then break it halfway through. That, that refers back to his crucifixion. At the crucifixion, he broke the covenant with Israel. That's nonsense. That's, yeah, Psalm 89.34. But Daniel 9.27 says, Therefore he, referring to the prince who is to come, the false Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's a seven-year period. And the word confirm means to make bigger. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even till the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. But see that he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That's not capitalized in other translations. But, but, they capitalize but, in the, next but the reason is, uh-huh, they break each clause and move it to the margin. So it's on its own line. And then they capitalize the first word of the line. Yeah, it's, it's not capitalizing as in God. Right, it's not capitalized as in God. That's not what it means. The then is capitalized, but capitalized, he is capitalized, and is capitalized. Every word that starts a line, they capitalize. That's all. Like poetry. Like poetry. Yeah, kind of like poetry. 
other translations, they're not bringing it to the margin and therefore they don't capitalize it. They just have it continuing to run on. That's a good, good question. Yeah. You see that you think, hmm, why do we capitalize Yeah. And in fact, they emphasize the he with a yellow marker to make it clear which word they were talking about. Really well done. So the translators are not in any way trying to imply that this is Messiah who breaks the covenant, simply that they broke the sentence into more than one line. Why did they do that? Because they know that prophecy teachers are going to talk about each little clause. Okay. So this is literally a prophecy, and that's the reason you've got all these clauses capitalized, set apart. It's like... Okay, this is something you can study. Right. And when I teach it, 70 weeks are determined. Notice we stop and we go, now by 70 weeks, what do we mean? What is the word for weeks in Hebrew? Shavuot. This is Shavuim, so it's not a week of days, it's a week of years. Okay. And then we go out for your people, your holy city. What's your people? That's the Jews, your holy city, that's Jerusalem. So they broke it into little bitty bits for us to teach from. Because it's a prophecy. Because it's a prophecy, an end times prophecy. Good point. Yeah, good point. Next question. What is the baptism, quote unquote, Yeshua refers to in Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 to 23? So let's go read. Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. But Yeshua answered and said, you do not know what you ask. There's another way you know biblical Hebrew, because nobody asked a question for them to say, and he answered. That's just Hebraism. You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Oh, watch what you say. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So the question is, what baptism does Messiah refer to in Matthew 20, verses 22 to 23? Baptism of suffering. The baptism of suffering. The immersion into God's Yeah, he's referring to death. He's referring to death. When you are baptized, what do they say when you go under the water? Buried with Messiah, raised to new life, yes. So he's talking about his death and his burial. All of the apostles were martyred for their faith, except for John. He suffered. Boy, did he suffer. They tried first to kill him by boiling him in oil, and he didn't die. That's when they sent him off to Patmos. They said, well, if we can't kill him, we've got to at least get him out of here somewhere. So that's the baptism that they're referring to. He's referring to his death. Next question. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4.
Give me a thumbs up and you found it. it. Says for Isaiah 34, verse 4. Let me read it. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and his fruit falling from a fig tree. Says, does this mean all the angels will be destroyed so that there are no more angels? The answer to that is no. Sometimes the hosts of heaven do refer to the angels, and sometimes it refers to the sun, moon, and stars. In this case, it's talking about the host of heaven referring to the sun, moon, and the stars. It's talking about the literal heavens as we know it being rolled up like a mushroom cloud. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 4.19. Yeah, it makes Bible study a little more challenging when sometimes it refers to angels, sometimes it refers to the sun, moon, and stars. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. Deuteronomy 4.19 And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the people, son of the whole heaven, as a heritage. So in Deuteronomy 4, it specifically refers to the sun, the moon, and the stars as all the hosts of heaven. So how do you know when it is and when it's not? Only from context. Study, study, study. The next question is about Jeremiah chapter 30. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, specifically verse 11. Okay, go ahead with your yeah, but we don't even have to wait. Okay, so if, that, if Isaiah 34 is talking about, you know, the host shall fall down, the host of heaven, talking about the sun, moon, and stars, correct? Yeah. Okay, so how do you marry that? Yeah, because it's not literally talking about the sun, moon, and all the stars. It's talking about when you look up and you see the mushroom cloud from a nuke, what do you see as far as the sun, moon, and stars? They're all blocked out. So it looks like all of heaven has been so rolled up into a, thing. it's a perspective thing. Okay. Yeah. Will sun, moon, and stars ever totally depart? The answer is no. I mean, but will it look like they did? Right. We know even into the new heavens and the new earth, they will not have gone away. But when you see a nuclear mushroom cloud, it's going to obscure everything. You're going to think it's all gone. It depends on where you are. Yeah, One of the ladies I worked with on was Japanese, and she was in Japan near the site when we dropped the nuke on Hiroshima, I think. She was 
up on one of the mountains overlooking the city and she survived. And she immediately left Japan, moved to Europe, and then eventually married a soldier and came back to the States. But she said it's a sight she would never forget. Depending on the strength of the blast, uh, your total annihilation from the intense heat. Yeah, how big is the bomb? How close are you? How high above the ground it is, all those factors come into play. Air burst, ground burst. If it's a ground burst, where it makes a crater and lifts all the dust up, make that mushroom cloud, then everything's totally annihilated and burn up within about three miles. For just a, a regular size bomb, but then the blast continues to tear up stuff. Yeah. You know, leaves part of the block structure. Anyway. So let's just not be here when that happens. Right. <laughs> okay. Be somewhere else. But that was a good yeah, but. Okay. No red circles. So let's go on. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. Yet I will not make a complete end of you. The question is, looking at the term a full end, its usage in scripture is pretty much when something is obliterated. How do we understand God saying that all the nations will be obliterated? That's not exactly what he says, though. Let's start in verse 10. Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I scatter you. Doesn't mean I will, it means as it means if I were to completely obliterate, I would not completely obliterate you. So he's not promising to make an end of all the nations that have surrounded Israel and that have abused Israel in the past. It's a promise that he will protect Israel and they will not suffer the continued um, attacks and captivities of the surrounding nations. So he will not obliterate you, even if he were to obliterate all the other nations. But then again, too, remember, he did bring the empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome to an end. But he did not make a full destruction of all the nations around. In biblical Hebrew, there are only two tenses. There's perfect tense, and there's imperfect tense. Perfect tense is completed action. Imperfect is action that's not complete. So you can take the same words in biblical Hebrew and translate it as I shall, I will, I might, I may, I should, I could. So the correct translation depends upon the context. And that's why they say, though I make, not that I will make, but if I were to make and then to all the other nations, trust me, I'll never make an end of you. And that word, I make, is imperfect. So yeah. it could be translated, I may. Yep, it's imperfect. It could be, I may, I should, I could, I might. Yeah. The, the term full end might not necessarily mean a destruction of it, other than just a, a different 
taken away the government. Yeah, I don't know. The, the word full end is Eberikala, which means all of it. It means? All of it, everything. All of it. Total destruction, annihilation? Total. Yeah. Okay. Does God have the power to totally annihilate those nations? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he says, even if I did, I would never totally annihilate you. That just reminds me of Nahum chapter 1. Let's turn to Nahum chapter 1 for a moment. Nahum chapter 1. We don't go to Nahum very often. You're very familiar with the name Nahum, though. Kafar Nachum, the village of Nahum, is Capernaum. That's where Messiah centered his ministry. But look just at verses 2 and 3. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. How can you read a verse like that? and say that God will put his faithful children through his wrath. He says he reserves wrath for his enemies. Kind of irrelevant to the question, but I thought it was cool anyway. Next question is from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 verse 7 question says 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 verse 7 reads in the New King James Version and many other translations as are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? So the question says, but I have a translation that says, are you not our Elohim? That tells you something about the translation and who did it. You have driven out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Yisrael, and, have, and gave it to the seed of Abraham, here's where it differs, who loves you forever. Who loves you forever. So in our translation, it says, your friend forever. The other translation, it says, who loves you forever. And the questioner says, I think this version referring to, quote, who loves you forever, quote, is very powerful, but can you please tell me what the Hebrew actually says? The answer is, of course. Here is the Hebrew. And what it literally says is, are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land from before your people, Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham, who is loving you forever? So that is a more literal translation when they said your friend forever, they assume one who loves you is your friend. Why they didn't just put the actual text, I don't know. 
but the other translation is the more accurate one at that point. Ready for the next one? The Hebrew word zimrat. Zimrat, which is Hebrew word 2176, is translated as song and only appears three times in Scripture, and they list it three times. And they say, what is special about this word as it depicts a song? How is it different from the word song that appears 65 plus times elsewhere in the Old Testament? That is shira, which is Hebrew word seven eight nine two. Fair question. Let's look at where it's used as song. Let's go to Exodus fifteen verse two. Does that immediately tell you what Exodus fifteen verse two is about? Moses. Song of Moses. Yeah. It's more than just a song. Exodus chapter fifteen verse two. We may as well start in verse 1, just because it's beautiful. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. What is that word song in the first verse? Shira, probably. Probably Shira. It's Zimrat in verse 2. Hmm. That's our first clue. Now let's go to Psalm 118. What is Psalm 118 about? The death of Messiah. Yeah. Psalm 119 is about Torah. Psalm 118 is about the crucifixion. Psalm 118, verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Sure sounds like it's quoting from the Song of Moses, doesn't it? The third one is in Isaiah 12.2. Isaiah 12.2 is about Messiah returning to rule and reign in the Messianic kingdom. We'll start in verse 1 because it's so neat. And in that day, what day? Yeah, the Lord, you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Adonai, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Those three times use the word Zimrat because Zimrat identifies the object of the song, what the song is about. Whereas the word Shira is the song itself. So Shira is the song. Zimrat is the object of the song. So if you took a modern song, who's not supposed to lose my number? Ricky. Ricky. So Ricky is the Zimrat. She's who the song is about. The song is Shira. How many people would know that? 
a lot, probably a whole lot. But now you all know the answer. Yes, ma'am. Both words, Zimrat and Shira, are translated into English in our Bible as song. So the question is, is there a difference in meaning where it's Zimrat versus Shira? And the answer is yes. Zimrat is the object of the song, who the song is about. And in all three cases, the Lord is my song. He's the reason I sing. He's the motivation. I tried to stay away from the word muse because people go, ooh, ooh, that's Greek mythology. But he's the inspiration for the song. He's what the song is about. Does that help? Sure. I don't see red marks. Next question. It starts out with just a statement. I am confused about the concept of us being, quote, redeemed, unquote, by Messiah, in addition to us being atoned for by his blood. In other words, it's getting to, is there a difference between redemption and atonement? And of course, the answer is, there, there is, yep. So let's keep reading the question. If we are spiritually saved slash atoned for through his shed blood, are we atoned for? Yes, but more. What does atonement mean? Atonement means a covering over. So in the Old Testament, when they did the sacrifices and put the blood on the Holy of Holies mercy seat, how many times a year? Once. The sin remains. It's just covered by the blood. It defers judgment until Messiah would come. So let me read the question. If we're spiritually saved slash atoned for through his shed blood, then why is redemption through him as our kinsman necessary? Atonement covers over the sin. What does redemption do? Buys us back. Takes it completely away, buys us back, pays the penalty that we ourselves can't pay. The wages of sin is? Death. Yeah. Says, and under the concepts of redemption, wouldn't we have been freed in a jubilee year anyway? No, that kind of redemption is a loan or a debt. Not a sin against God and man. It says, with one or both of those years possibly being a year of his coming, yeah, he could come in a year of Jubilee. Is this the year of Jubilee? I don't know. <laughs> as soon as he comes, let's ask him. <laughs> Do you have a list of questions to ask him? Do you know who Gershon Solomon is? Gershon Solomon is the leader of the Temple Mount Faithful. He was one of those soldiers who was wounded in battle many years before they took the Temple Mount back. And the Syrian soldiers came around and he could hear them chamber the rounds and the weapons. He couldn't see because his eyes were full of blood and he knew he was dead. But he woke up several weeks later in a hospital and there were UN observers that came to see him to say, do you want to know why you're still alive? He said, yeah, I, I, I knew for sure I was a dead man. He said, well, so do we. But when they chamber the rounds to kill you, they suddenly turn and fled. And we saw it. And we asked him, why did you run away? 
And they said, we're prepared to fight against any army of man, but he was surrounded by a group of angels, and we cannot fight against God. Many years later, he was still in the army. He was one of the first soldiers to go up on the Temple Mount in 1967 when Israel recaptured Jerusalem. And he said, there an angel appeared to him and said, it's time to rebuild the temple. And that's when he went off and started the Temple Mount Faithful. Zola Levitt is now deceased. But I remember an interview where Zola interviewed Gershon Solomon. And said, Gershon, when Messiah comes, what's the first thing you're going to ask him? And Gershon replied, is this your first coming or your second? So I always thought that that's a good question for Jewish people to put on their list. What kind of questions do we have on ours? Kind of like too late, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, we need to ask questions if, if, if an interpretation of Scripture that says, when he comes, we shall know as we are known. Yeah, we'll know him as we're known. Doesn't mean we're going to know everything. I think we're going to have seven years of detention after the rapture, seeing all the baiting, Okay. So my answer to the question is that atonement is a covering over of our sin. The sin remains. It's just covered by the blood which defers God's judgment until Messiah's coming. And redemption is paying to God what we owe him. We owe him our very lives, and Messiah gave up his life in our place. Therefore, the debt has been paid. That is redemption. And at that point, the sin is taken away. It's so, not just covered over. It's a little bit like a loan deferment, like a student loan deferment. You know, you can put your loans all for certain reasons or forgiveness. You know, Maybe. I would liken it, I guess, to a deferred sentence. You You've committed DUI, and I'm the judge, and I give you 90 days in jail, but I will defer it for two years. And if you not have another incident in the two years, I'll vacate it. Yes, ma'am. Is, is this the reason that Yeshua went down to Sheol to set the captives free? Correct. He had to present himself to them because how many ways are there to the Father? Just one. Oops, I see a red one out there. Let's see what it is. <laughs> Again, it was a private one. I wish that one had been public, but essentially it was, I have a list of questions for Messiah, but Paul, we wait. I'll just give them to you. <laughs> I thought it was cute. Really cute. Okay. The next one is about Zechariah chapter 14. So let's turn to Zechariah 14. It's no longer in my Bible. Oh, there it is. <laughs> this is a new Bible. I can't find anything. Yours doesn't have either? No. <laughs> I can't find anything. The pages all stick together. <laughs> Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. It's with Zorro. It starts with and then Z. If you, if you do a, a Hebrew published Bible, then the, you know, the order's a little Yeah, the order's much different. 
I like the way Brett Metter said it this afternoon when I was watching his prophecy update. He told people, turn to Nahum. He said, it's in that portion of your Bible where the pages still stick together because you've never <laughs> opened it. Okay. All right, are we there in Zechariah 14? Let's read verse 5. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. So the question is, who is being told to flee in Zechariah 14.5? Given that the Lord is returning and putting his feet on the Mount of Olives and destroying all the aggressors at the Battle of Armageddon, why would anyone who is waiting for Yeshua's return be told to flee? It is a good question. So in Matthew, let's look at chapter 24, verse 15, because it relates to Hanukkah that we just had. Matthew 24, 15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing up in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what was the abomination of desolation? Do you remember from studying Hanukkah? Was the statue of Zeus Curios with Antiochus' own face with it, on it. What will the false messiah set up at an image of himself as the king of the gods? So he's going to do the same thing. And whoever reads, let him understand. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If they are saved, when the abomination of desolation is put up, they're going to have fled to Petra. What about those that are not yet saved, but get saved afterwards? They're in Jerusalem when the false Messiah comes to power. What happens when Messiah returns to false Messiah and his army? They're going to get decimated. Jerusalem's going to be a battlefield. So if you're saved, God says, get out of town because all heaven's about to break loose. That's who's going to flee. So the living people who become believers during the tribulation period and still reside in Jerusalem because they didn't get saved in time to flee according to the Messiah's warning in Matthew 24, 15. They're going to flee before the Lord destroys the false Messiah. At this point, the false Messiah sits in the temple in Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be anywhere close to the false Messiah when all heaven breaks loose. If anybody's got a better answer, that's the best one I got. Next one, oh, is a real good one given the news. Does Israel plan to have a temple in operation by Passover of 2023? They intend to. Will they or not? I don't know. But the question is, will the rebuilding of the temple during the tribulation period be sanctioned by God? Before the placement of the abomination of desolation, will God accept the sacrifices that are made there? Once the abomination desolation is set up and the temple is desecrated, 
assuming that the building of it will be sanctioned by God, will this then mean that the whole temple will be destroyed by the Lord when he returns because it has been defiled and used for pagan worship? And then the questioner makes reference first to Deuteronomy 7, 5. Deuteronomy 7, 5. Deuteronomy 7, 5. But thus you shall deal with them, referring to the pagans. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. So will God allow Israel to use an altar that's been desecrated by the false Messiah to worship him? The answer is no. What happened as we studied Hanukkah, and of course these questions were submitted before Hanukkah. What happened when Israel managed to overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes and take back the temple? Did they then do a sacrifice of a lamb on the altar? No, they had to tear the altar down. You can't use an altar once it's been desecrated. Also, Deuteronomy 12.3. Deuteronomy 12.3. Yeah, it was three years from the time that Antiochus sacrificed a sow pig on the altar until they were able to reclaim the temple. Did they tear down the temple? No, they tore down the altar. Deuteronomy 12.3. What does Ecclesiastes say? What's happened before will happen again. Deuteronomy 12.3 says... You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. So now let's go look at what the scripture says about the tribulation period temple, as well as the millennial kingdom temple. Let's go to the book of Haggai. which means my festivals. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. So Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Page 1374, he says. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, so what's that day? That's a little one, the time that starts the 40 days of Teshuva, or repentance. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. He would have been king in Israel, except he's a descendant of Jeconiah, so he can't be king. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy is this? In time, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore consider your ways. 
Who says consider your ways? The Lord of hosts. Ooh. Is this a or else kind of prophecy? Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He earns wages, earns wages put into a bag with holes, meaning what? You're back in the land, but you're not prospering. God is not blessing you. Why not? Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. Oops, we're going to find out, aren't we? Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So when Israel's back in the land, God allows them to establish their homes, their property, and then what does he expect them to do? You have to work building the temple. How long has Israel been back in the land? Since 1948. They've had the Temple Mount since 1967. What does this tell us? Get out there and build a temple. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 40 to 42. We won't read all that, of course, because there's not enough time. But Ezekiel 40 to 42 is about rebuilding the temple before Messiah returns. Right? You know, Daniel. Something I think is, that's interesting. As we Good and loud. We were reading this. You know, when the first temple was built, God didn't come and say, build my temple. Like it was the desire of David's heart. Right. It was David's idea. But now he's having to like pretty much take them to the woodshed. Yep. And say, you want to know why you're not prospering? Build my temple. So it's right. like you see that the attitude of the people is still when they come back into the land. They still don't have the heart that David had. Right. They've come back into the land. Is God protecting them from all their enemies? Or are there rockets coming from the north and the south, the east and the west? Except there's none from the west because that's ocean. Okay. In Ezekiel 40 to 42, this is before Messiah returns. And it's all about the temple being rebuilt. So God is having them rebuild this temple. So the question, part of it was... Will the rebuilding of the temple during the tribulation period be sanctioned by God? The answer is yes, it's in prophecy and it's directed. Before the abomination of desolation is set up, will God accept the sacrifices? Yes, just like he did in the 40 years from the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah till the temple was destroyed. Even the apostles were still bringing sacrifices because God commands it. Um, in Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 to 6 we looked at that earlier where do the two witnesses testify and prophesy to the Lord our God in Jerusalem at the rebuilt temple so again does God sanction it he most certainly does 
It is defiled in Daniel 9.27. We read Daniel 9.27 a few minutes ago. But the one last scripture we need to add before we complete the discussion of this is Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6 talks about what happens after Messiah returns at the second coming. The temple has been defiled. The Antichrist or false Messiah beast of Revelation 13 set up an idol to himself. Allowed sacrifices only to himself. Defiled God's altar. Will God say, hey, just pour a little oil and wine on it, we're good? No. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy, saying. So this is a quote. Behold the man whose name is the branch. What man is that? That's Messiah Yeshua. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. In other words, He's going to tear down that desecrated altar or it will be torn down under his auspices and he will rebuild the new altar. Verse 13, yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So yes, God will allow it to be built. In fact, God commands it to be built. God prophesies it will be built and it will be used for his purposes until the false Messiah moves in and desecrates it. And then the false Messiah will rule there until Messiah returns and his days, that is the false Messiah's days, are over. And then Messiah will tear down that which has been defiled and rebuild the altar. Will he tear down the whole structure? We don't know. We know he will rebuild the altar. And in Ezekiel chapter 43, it talks about the steps taken to then rededicate the new altar to the Lord. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 43. We know also from the book of Daniel that the temple is rededicated at Hanukkah. Yes, ma'am. Will the temple be started before a rapture? No, I do not think so. I think Daniel 9.27 says that that's part of the seven-year treaty of peace with Israel. What will cause Israel to agree is they get to build a temple. And the Muslims will agree because the Dome of the Rock won't get torn down. You know, my tour guide that I call my Jewish mama one year, she just about slapped me when I said that down in the rabbi's tunnel under the temple, temple Mount. We were looking at a model of Jerusalem. And she said, God will not share that temple mount with the Muslims. I said, you're right. But remember, the Shekinah glory departed in Ezekiel chapter 10. And he doesn't return until after the tribulation period. So he's not in that temple. And she said, I never thought about that. Ezekiel chapter 43. We know, we've read many times, Messiah returns, he bears the glory of God as it said, 
in Zechariah, and he sits down on the throne in verse 7, and then verse 12. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar. So everything in this chapter is about what? The altar. The measurements of the altar. The sacrifices on the altar. Sprinkling the blood on the altars. Verse 27. Well, 26. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord God. So it doesn't say anything about putting up new walls, new curtains, etc., but it does talk about rebuilding the altar, doing the dedication to God and the sacrifices upon it. So this, in this place, atonement for the altar, uh, I'm kind of struggling with if atonement from the previous... Atonement means to cover, to cover. over. So they're going to sprinkle blood on the altar to cover over. Okay. And, uh, okay. Are there people who will be born in the, in the millennial kingdom that are not saved? Will they commit sins? Will they need atonement? And will they need redemption? That's why there's atonement and redemption. Oh, look at our time. We are on page 15, about halfway through page 15, out of 27 on the Q&As from when we started this session. So there's a few left to go. I had somebody send me an email today that kind of said, you know, we're probably about done. <laughs> nope. We got a while to go yet. Whoops. I haven't stopped the recording yet. Shame on me.